1: Hello and welcome to the News Meeting, where we get into the conversation, the argument in fact, that happens in newsrooms in some form or other, everywhere, every day. It's one of the aspects of journalism that it's not just enough to get the story, you've got to try and work out where it lands. Where does it lead? Does it top the news? Does it run somewhere down the running order? Well, we're going to try and have a go at exactly that conversation and open it up for you work out what leads the news, what matters and why. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me and we're going to try and make sense of what we know, what it means, perhaps even where it might lead. I'm James Harding, I'm the editor of Tortoise. I used to edit the Times newspaper, I ran BBC News, so I've been in these conversations a fair few times now and every time it's a fascinating question, a question of news judgment, and there's no right answer, but heaven knows we've all got one. So between us, we're going to try and figure out what that should be, what in effect should lead the news. From Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the News Meeting. We have made it to February. It is cold and brisk and certainly busy in the news. I'm joined today by three of my colleagues here at Tortoise. Uh, a big welcome to Claudia Williams. Welcome Claudia is a reporter and a presenter of the Sensemaker podcast. Uh, before Tortoise, she worked at the New York Times and The Week magazine.
0: Thank you very much. It's my first time here.
1: (laughs) Welcome, Claudia. Look at that. Just the sound of that car must be quite chilling for you, Alexi. Alexi, (laughs) as you'll know, is our investigations editor. He's the man behind the podcast Sweet Bobby and then hoaxed. And they've all done preposterously well and it would be boastful and kind of inappropriate to say how well they've done. Um, His story, you've been here before, haven't you? I've come first, second and third. (laughs) We're going to leave open a place which is not even on the podium for you this time. And uh, Mark Andrew, who arranges all of the live events at Tortoise, he's been here on the show before. had like a really worthy Belt and Road, future of China in the world story last time. And you were surprised by it. I was surprised by it, and <laughs> I, was, I was ally put it third. So let's see whether we do better this time. Welcome, Mark. Of course, this is a bit different to a normal news meeting. You've each only brought one story, and it's often not that neat. Often people have got nothing at all, or they've got three or four stories they think are all should lead the news. But Claudia and Mark and Alexei are each going to pitch one story, and then together we're going to try and figure out what we really know about them, where they should sit in the running order, what they mean, where they might possibly go in the days and weeks to come. Before we hear them, let's have a quick reminder of some of the news stories of the week. Going on strike is not the way to conduct a pay negotiations in a modern economy. We have
0: to stand up and do something about it, otherwise nobody will want to become a teacher.
1: The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has sacked the chairman of his Conservative Party Nadim Zahawi.
0: It is clear that there has been a serious breach of the ministerial code. The UK economy will perform worse than all other major advanced nations this year, including Russia. An apology and a promise of cultural change from police, 34 years on from the Hillsborough disaster.
1: We are sorry that we got it so wrong. conglomerate, Adani Group, is currently pulling off the largest con in corporate history. More
0: than $60 billion in value wiped off of his various companies. At the last count, the deputy prime minister was facing 24 separate allegations of bullying. His boss promised to lead a government of integrity and accountability, but it's sackings and sleaze that have dominated his first hundred days.
1: Let's start with long stories short. In a single sentence, what's your story? Claudia, you go first.
0: The B team. My God,
1: we brought a new level of pithiness to our journalism here. We haven't had before, just the B team.
0: Just the B team.
1: My God, that's going to leave a lot of white space as a headline. OK, Alexei.
2: Uh, How to lose 50 billion in a week.
3: Mark?
1: Is the British Army tanking? Nice. I see what you did there. Right, Claudia, why don't you go first?
0: So um, my story is about Dominic Raab and the bullying allegations against him, against the deputy prime minister. So to do a very brief overview of what we know, there are eight formal complaints against him involving at least 24 civil servants. These are long-standing complaints. Six of them are from his first time round at the... MOJ and the allegations are serious they're ones that you know some of them are maybe getting a little bit more attention than the others the throwing of the tomatoes it all seems like a little bit of fun but then there are you know other allegations about belittling people demeaning them being rude aggressive and these are complaints that have come from the civil service who are people that can't really speak out as much as MPs might be able to for example when bullying complaints like this come up in um, other contexts and a lot of them are said to be more junior members of staff um and I should say that Dominic Raab denies these allegations. They are at this stage allegations, but we know that in the inquiry that's happening currently into them, um, three permanent secretaries have given evidence, and Labour has called for Raab to be suspended. Um, and why do you think why do you think it should lead the news? So I think this for a couple of different reasons. The first is that I think it's a real signifier of how weak the government is. Um, it shows the division between Whitehall and Westminster, um, which is something that really matters right now. It pits the civil service against the Tory party. It weakens a relationship at a time where we really need them to be working together. Um, but also, today, as we record, it is 100 days of Rishi Sunak, and this is potentially the third high-level minister to go under Sunak, if you have Gavin Williamson, Nadine Zahawi, and now potentially Dominic Raab. And... This is why I called it the B-team.
1: The B-team being the the team of bullies or the the 2nd rate team (laughs) of politicians?
0: The second team of politicians. Who did he have to choose from? He had very limited support. He can't select from his whole party. Even if he could select from his whole party, we're at the dregs of government. We're however many years into a Tory party which has exhausted people. It's exhausted talent. The people who are left are tainted. They're not your... A team, they're mm. your B team.
1: But, Claudia, what do you do? So so I'm really in two minds on a story like this. On the one hand, I do think there are real questions about the nature of Rishi Sunak as prime minister. Why did he choose Dominic Raab? Because the truth is that these stories were around Dominic Raab the last time that he was in government. So there are, as you say, character of the prime minister, culture of politics stories. C- can I give you my reservation about it? Sure. There's a lot of pent-up animosity in and around Westminster and Whitehall. I'm, I've no doubt at all that working for Dominic Raab was not an easy thing to do. It's really hard for us from the outside, with just these titbits of information, to know w- where exactly he sits on that spectrum of hard-charging politician that demands a great deal from the people who work with him to outright bully to some allegations, as you say, that are worse than that. And the fact is, we just don't have a line of sight to that. What we just have a line of sight to at the moment is a process.
0: Totally, and I agree with you. Um, I think it's very different to the Nadim Zahawi situation. It is a lot more he said, she said, there are no hard documents. But I think it's a mistake to discount it for that reason. Because the reason it matters to me is its revealing of Rishi Sunak. and his lack of action and the way that he's behaving in this situation. So if you take the comparison between Nadim Zahawi, that was a quick decision. that was He was gone within a week. But even then, Rishi Sunak didn't make that call. He outsourced that decision to Laurie Magnus. He didn't make that call himself. And in this situation, he is putting his ally, Rob out in front of the news. He's sitting next to him at PMQs. But even then, if he wanted to support him, He's not doing what Boris Johnson did with Priti Patel. He's not rallying the troops. He doesn't have troops to rally. It's inaction. And I think it's the inaction 100 days in and the lack of support that he seems to have from his kind of wider party. And that's what makes it important. This is the third one yeah. in 100 days.
1: I'll tell you what I do things interesting about it. I, I remember the first time that Keir Starmer at PMQs started going after Rishi Sunak for being weak. And I remember thinking to myself, "That's interesting. Why have they chosen that as the word?" And on the talk shows now, you hear every Labour politician saying the same thing: "Weak, weakness." And you would have thought that they would have gone after Rishi Sunak for being rich, wealthy, out of touch, but they haven't. Weakness is the thing, and so this is this plays to that at least politically. I don't know, Alexi, what do you think of this story? I, th-
2: I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting, not story. I, I was hearing some someone on the radio uh, a couple of days ago saying that if so many allegations have been levied against a civil servant, like a permanent secretary, then they would have been at least suspended whilst there was an investigation. So I think that there's a kind of weird question about why Rob
1: is still... But I'm not you know, clear about that either because you then get into a mob justice situation which is a bunch of people make allegations and they force someone out of the job through the course of the process and I'm, I'm not, I don't really, I'm not clear what I think about that. It's strange though isn't it because at some point, at,
2: at one point in the story there is a tipping point when so many people come forward right. that you have to treat it slightly differently. Do you think so? What happens if you get one person with a really serious allegation? I think each case has to be judged on its merits, but if you look at some of the Me Too reporting that has happened, from in in the last like three or four years, there has been a tipping point where news organisations have said, "Okay, we've got like twelve women saying this about this one person." Yes. We a year ago we had two, we couldn't run it, but now we've got twelve, we we can.
1: Mark, what do you think?
3: Um, I mean. A- I've seen things written about Dominic Raab which says he's an example of sort of the most mediocre of, of masculinity, um, and, which is weird because there is also some fringes of Twitter that kind of are quite thirsty for Dominic Raab after those rubbing pictures were shared a couple of years ago. But I th- you come but, with but, it from
1: a totally different angle. Always, I'm quite excited. Let's do the rest of the cabinet. It's it's yeah. it's very strange, <laughs> and th-
3: th- there are some committed Dominic Raab uh, fans online, but, um, <laughs> but but I think in terms of the story, I think that the, the most interesting thing for me is it's the latest and perhaps one of the most clear examples of the fracture in the relationship between Westminster and Whitehall yeah that is um and I mean I know it's happened before but but this is really quite terrible and when you've got a, a union is it the senior civil servants union which they don't have track record for creating a lot of fuss and they if they're calling for the suspension of, of of Dominic then that's that's that says something quite bad all right Mark Uh, Well, I've got a clear sense of where in the running order this should run. (laughs) Second. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so my story uh, is the British Army tanking. Um, This is the story that uh, earlier this week, Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary, uh, stood up in Parliament and said that he'd been briefed by a US general that the British Army was no longer regarded as a top fighting force. Um, And the entire service was unable to protect the UK and our allies, for the best part of a decade. Um, The quote goes on, declining warfighting capability caused by decades of cuts to save money needs to be reversed in the wake of Russia's war in Ukraine. And Ben Wallace is asking for what he says he needs an extra three billion a year to get things back into shape. And I think that's really interesting, because we've looked at this in the past, the readiness and the capability of the army. And there are lots of different versions of this story. And I think it would be really interesting to see which one is actually true. Now... Hold on, hold on. What are the different versions? So there are no shortage of old generals, uh, Lord Dana amongst the ones most recently, but we've spoken to others as well, who will come out and tell you that there isn't enough money, there, there isn't enough equipment, and there aren't enough people, personnel in the armed forces. There are other generals who will tell you, actually, there are plenty of people because modern warfare is higher tech, less boots on the ground. And when you look at it like that, you, and you can make the case actually for either way, you can make the case, you know, yes, we have we are the 34th largest army in the world. We have a small fighting force, but we are one of the handful of armies that can still wage war or act some sort of military activity overseas like not on our own borders a lot of these larger armies out of the 33 that are bigger than us a lot of them are mainly based on internal security this is people like Iran and Pakistan and things like that so we are a small but highly some would say b- better equipped and better trained fighting force. But isn't
1: it but mark isn't the issue with this that is a really really big issue but not a great story In right. that you've essentially got a minister who's talking his book saying and speaking on behalf of his department seeking funding I mean the curious thing I think about it is why is he asking for tanks yep well why he... are you asking for field um uh artillery yeah in an age in which we by the looks of things we're not sending armies you know Don't... to go and fight wars on the ground
3: absolutely and he could be asking for tanks because we're still waiting on the 600 Ajax tanks that have cost somewhere in the region of about five and a half billion of which we've had about 26 delivered and they don't really work and the troops can't can't use them. um, And the whole thing looks like it's a basically a waste of about six billion dollars of cash. So in terms of equipment, that's a recent bit of procurement
1: that's gone seriously you know, the interesting thing is, um, before Christmas, there were David Miliband, the former Foreign Secretary, gave this speech, which was about Britain's place in the world. And he made an argument, which I thought was really interesting, which was, we need to figure out what we can do where we have real impact on the world. And his view was, we should double our spending on intelligence, because we've got real leadership in intelligence, spying... Mm-hmm. And we should take a take a little bit out of defence to do that, because at least then we're invaluable to Five Eyes to the to the sort of Western powers. The thing that sort of, I don't understand about this Ben Wallace ask is, even if he gets the tanks he's asking for, you're still marginal in terms of global defence
3: capabilities, aren't you? You are, and some of the reporting around this is is really quite spurious so there's lots of facts being thrown around like if the british had to commit its armed forces tomorrow we'd run out of bullets in about a week um incidentally by the same measure germany runs out in about two days um (laughs) but but the a a lot of those stats having spoken to uh general sir chris Deverell when he came to the newsroom uh towards the end of last year um a lot of those stats are based on the uk acting as a sole Combatant, right. and actually, that doesn't that's happen.
1: Yeah, no, no yeah. I know. It's. I think. I
3: think there is a bit kind of crying warfare too. Uh, Alexei,
1: what do you think?
2: I, I think I tend to, to, to agree. I think it's a really, really interesting issue, uh, but I'm not sure where the actual story is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, yeah, yeah what uh, what is Britain's place in the world, and how is it affected by its military spending? That is a that's a, and and, and whether we need to whether we could get more influence by manipulating that spending that is super interesting not least because i think we're spending like 30 billion pounds replacing nuclear submarines Uh, what's that Mm. you know in this how's that going to work how's that going to work so yeah as an issue great
1: claudia
0: i think to be honest the army is something and the military forces in general is something that i don't necessarily understand because i'm not sure i can picture what modern day warfare means for us here in the UK and whether what we need is boots on the ground, tanks or cyber security or something like that. Um, I think it matters as a story because it matters if the US no longer sees us as an elite. I think that matters. And just in terms of having armed forces, I think these kind of stories tend to get leapt upon by people potentially with more hawkish intentions. But practically speaking at a time when I know that we have massive numbers of kind of public services that are you know, struggling—is that the right place for money to go? The flip side to that being, when we have problems with all of our services, when we have strikes, it's the army who comes in. So we, you, what we are seeing, the kind of practical ways in which the army matters to our society beyond, you know, warfare. Is, this isn't just a question of warfare. Yeah.
1: And Mark, sorry, go on. I
3: was going to say, and the things that are affecting other public services are affecting the army as well. So there are salary negotiations going on they are being hit with an extra i think it's something like well their fuel bill now the, the annual energy and fuel bill for the mod is something like 600 million a year
1: but but so but, so forgive me for piling in but the reason i actually the more i think about this story the less i like it is that you know sometimes when you report what politicians say because that's what they're talking about mm-hmm. but you're not really reporting the issue they faced and There is obviously a big question about what kind of army we have, what kind of national defence we have. But right now, it seems to me, the question for Ben Wallace is, do you want the UK to participate in an effort that holds Russia at bay in Ukraine, or do you want to arm up Ukraine so that they have a chance of winning? So it's the F-16s, fighter jets, what kind of military supplies. And I worry that this kind of story gets you into the safe territory of MOD wants resources, Treasury says no, the United States weighs in because they want to see a more powerful UK in, in NATO. And you end up in one of those diplomatic, you know, arm wrestle stories rather than the really big story of our times, that is, how far will the West support Ukraine?
3: Potentially, yeah. But I think the other way to look at it is um, it's it's a shift in the whole kind of British military doctrine where for the past 200 years, we've tried to be the expert at absolutely everything and have the capability to back that up. Whereas really now, you know, we should probably be looking to excel in one particular thing and do that really well and then plug into whatever America, NATO, the EU wants, needs help with rather than us trying to be sort of jack of all trades.
1: Mark, thank you for the valiant defence of the defence story. Alexi, what have you got? Imagine if Jeff Bezos had woken up a couple of days ago uh,
2: and had seen a report that was published online calling Amazon the largest con in corporate history. And then imagine that over the next, like, 48 to 72 hours, Amazon had lost $100 billion dollars worth of its value and jeff bezos had gone from the second richest person in the world down to something like number 18 or 19 because he'd lost about 52 billion of his personal value that is basically what's happened this week except not with amazon but with an indian conglomerate called the adani group and for me it's a cracking story just because at its heart is one of the biggest most serious corporate collapses that we've seen for years, if not more than a decade. But more than that, it raises these huge questions about the influence of short sellers, the future of India. Um, and just what the the short seller role in this is? So Adani is one of the world's richest people. And and the extent of his kind of corporate power in India is, is a huge story in itself. He controls everything from uh, concrete to the ports to to, to fossil I- industry extraction. He's his face is on billboards all over the. He's he's kind of the face of of Modi's e- economic resurgence, and so it was a real shock, especially inside India, when this short seller called Hindenburg Research, which is based in New York, and by the way, doesn't have more than like twelve people working for it. Yeah. They publish a one hundred page report saying. Adani Group is fraudulent. It's uh, full of accounting errors. It's stocks are over overvalued. We're shorting the hell out of it. Um, and you know, instead of being able to kind of ignore that uh, criticism or or somehow sort of squeeze out the short seller, everybody has just gone okay then <laughs> and got their money out of the Adani Group, and 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 it's gone it's gone that off a cliff.
1: So that's the thing that's really most shocking to me about it is that Hindenburg produces the research note that says the emperor's got no clothes. And everyone goes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. We're, and we're going to sell our shares and we're going to run for the hills. And the bit I don't understand about this, Alexei, is did everyone sort of know that it wasn't necessarily as strong as they'd hoped, but they just hoped? What does it tell you about the mass exodus from Adani group shares? Um I think people were really excited about this prospect of growth, but, but
2: it, it, it's almost like it grew so fast that it just needed someone to say, well, hold on a minute, let's just see how, how you're actually doing this.
1: And what do you say to people who say, cry me a river? You know, very, very wealthy man is now still extremely wealthy man, and I don't have shares in any of the Adani Group businesses. I don't understand Hindenburg research. Truth is, we haven't even fact-checked the Hindenburg research, so it feels like a big row far, far away. Who cares?
2: So there was this piece in the FT today that said that one of the results of this might be that m- m- a lot of money will now flow from India back into China and Japan. So the underlying concerns about corruption uh, I- effectively will apply outside this particular case. Second thing, reason why we should care about it in England is because, because Joe Johnson, Boris Johnson's brother, is tied up in With this Udini scandal. With Yeah. So How? he resigned today As director of an investment bank that had been named by Hindenburg as one of the entities that allegedly hid Adani shares
1: so that's a kind of running story so Joe Johnson was based in Delhi wasn't he for the FT and so would have got to know all of the people all the players in and around the Adani group that's the I didn't know that actually yeah that must be how all of that happened yeah, interesting. But even then, that's that's a bit of a tangent, isn't it? Um, brother of former prime minister resigns from investment bank a line to group that gets hit by a short seller's sell note. I think it depends on how you want to look at the the news, and that's why I
2: men- mentioned Bezos like earlier in this conversation. You because, have to
1: play it as something uh, that people relate to.
2: Y- yeah, and you have to. I think it's legitimate to see this as a. Uh, a kind of a story that is a kind of globalisation, a global story. That's how you, that's how you should uh, be or, at it. Or,
1: or is it a corruption in global capitalism that we, we, we sort of look past every day and then suddenly gets exposed? The question is, how much is Adani group an outlier? And as we say, by the way, uh, we should say this, Adani group denies all the allegations. We don't know them. As I said, we don't know the details of the Hindenburg research. I don't know. It's Claudia, what do you think of all this?
0: I think that I'm going to take a leaf out of the Keith Blackmore school of this podcast and go negative and say, and that is absolutely not to do with the fact that I wanted to pitch this story. Um, And it's all to do um, with the fact, I think, that this is a story that is yet to play out. I think this is something that our investigations editor should investigate because we don't know how much of it is true at this stage. We know that short sellers are incentivized to potentially exaggerate. We know that from reporting that we did last year into um, kind of research done by um, one firm into Alzheimer's and there's this massive kind of short seller argument going on there and it's completely heated and if you listen to anyone on any side, the other side is completely wrong. So we don't know how true any of these allegations are yet. This is a story that requires kind of more time and I think it's really easy to get overexcited about it when people have dollar signs in their eyes and as you say, it's the kind of massive story of like hugely rich man and family become less rich do I care about that as much as I care about the weakness of the Prime Minister in this country when I'm in this country?
1: So there's, a, so, so there's <laughs> <a joke. laughs> I do have to say your put down on Lexi nice, is the classic, nice. you know, the food is terrible and the portions are too small <laughs> which is, it's a story that would be much better if you did much more work on it. I, I appreciate that. And Mark, having what, said
0: that, obviously it's an unbelievable story <laughs> but what, what not better at all.
3: Um, the whole short selling thing is generally stories about sort of money that doesn't exist being... or things that don't exist being bought and sold by companies and people that no one's ever heard of in numbers that are impossible to contemplate. So I find it quite difficult to... i not the some the to it. Yeah. yeah, totally. And, you know, becoming dropping from first richest man to 18th richest man is...
1: is Heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> tricky, tricky. Alright, well, listen, in a moment I'm going to try and make a decision on what should lead, or what at least I think should lead the news. But before that... Why don't you each have a go at what you think should lead the news? And I'm going to remind you, Claudia, that you can't <laughs> choose your own story. So why don't you go first?
0: Unfortunately, I think it's going to be Alexi and the Italian. <laughs> I've made group such having a great effort at um, puncturing yeah, it. Yep, that's my choice.
1: By the way, that is not the Keith Blackmore school of this <laughs> podcast. Once you go for the story, you keep talking <laughs> yeah. it down and you pitch sports at the you know, expense of everything else. Okay, that's next Keith's time, approach. Next time. Alexi? I-, I go with the Dominic Robb story.
2: Why? Because I find the army story really interesting, but I don't think it's the story. I think it's more of an issue. And I think Rob, so many allegations
3: against him, that's, that, that's Esheron Rishi Sunak, which is going to turn into something. And Mark? <coughs> well, before we came in, Claudia said that we would both not pick Alexis. So... <laughs> what? <laughs> Someone is gaining, on. On. gaining the system. I've betrayed everyone. Oh and now I'm feeling
1: quite exposed <laughs> over here. Um, by the way that's the most that's the closest to a real news meeting that you've come <laughs> so far because in in all news conferences that I've been to there's always a huddle outside the meeting room as people are talking before you go in and what's often happening is people saying listen I think I'll probably back up your story not least because so and so the correspondent actually has gone away for a long weekend <laughs> we can't get it reported or I haven't I need to get away early today so, so okay now I know a little bit about how the system works so, so not with the deal you did in advance not
3: notwithstanding that and um, the the main story is that I've been stitched up I think I think it has to be the Dominic Raab story because I'm interested in it from the toxic masculinity at the top of government angle Um, I think there's there's a lot there to to, to be
1: uncovered okay Okay, well uh, if I might I'm gonna have a go at it I'll, I'll be honest with you I don't really love any of these stories right and just to say explain why Ouch. <laughs> I, I don't really love them if, if if we sat here and it was early in the morning on a news day i'd say let's come back to an afternoon meeting see what else we've got and the reason for that is the defence story is as we said a really big issue but not really a story you know the defence secretary should be making the case for for more kids the adani story is enormous but it's one of those ones that feels very remote and How do I emotionally engage with the story? How do I get at the um, impact of that for for individuals with so much going on, teacher strikes and war in Ukraine and inflation and rising interest rates? It feels all very distant. And actually, the Raab story, it's my process problem, which is it is a row between politicians and civil servants. But at the moment, it's very, very hard to see exactly what that story is. So I'd be in that spot going, really, is that what we want? That said, we've got what we've got. So I will go with this running order. I'm afraid, Mark, I'd put your story third. I think it's really important, but I think the Defence Secretary asking for more money, in effect, publicly from Treasury, is important. I think your argument that it is a crossroads moment for the British military is a good one, but it's a one that the British military has made again and again for about 30 years. And I actually think it's not the key issue facing the Defence Uh, Ministry in the UK or in the West right now. I'd run the Dominic Raab story second because, actually, ally your complaint about Alexei's story, we're in the process of the process. We haven't yet got an outcome. And I think, weirdly, even when we do, which is uh, most likely to be some kind of departure of Dominic Raab, I suspect, you'll end up with One of those stories, which is another minister goes and then the caravan rolls on. The fundamentals of British government won't necessarily have been changed. I do think that something fundamental has happened in and around Indian capitalism and the relationship between, in effect, small pockets of loud money and very, very large corporations. And that's why I'd run the Adani Group as the lead story. I think it raises big questions about the integrity of Indian capitalism, about the relationship between Modi and, if you like, the Indian oligarchs, and the ways in which activists, in this case Hindenburg, but others who might have social agendas or financial agendas, can really make their presence felt. And I think that makes Market's much more uh, um, unstable, but potentially much more interesting too when people who've got social agendas, campaigning agendas, start thinking to themselves, we're going to start kicking the tires on some of these biggest com- the world's biggest companies and what they do. So I really don't think there's a right answer this week, but for what it's worth, my running order would be Alexei's Adani Group story, Claudia's <laughs> Dominic <laughs> Grab, uh and then Mark's defence story. I'm not happy about this that's it for this week's news meeting thank you very much Claudia for joining us I hope you'll come back soon thank you too to Mark and thank you Alexi Um, and most of all thank you for listening none of us of course know what the next week of news is going to throw at us but whatever happens I'm going to be back next week with three more journalists and they're all going to try and convince me as you've heard this week that they've got the story that mattered most in the news meeting